text which I'd like to direct your attention is to be found in the second epistle of Paul to Timothy, chapter 1, beginning in verse 6, and I'm going to read through verse 12. Wherefore, I put thee in remembrance that thou stir up the gift of God which is in thee by the putting out of my hands. For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God, who hath saved us and called us with an holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began, but is now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who hath abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, whereinto I am appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher of the Gentiles. For the which cause I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. What I would like to do in this and the next three messages is to preach through the doctrines that are commonly known by the acronym TULIP. And if you're wondering, why is he doing that? I'm going to get to that just in a moment. If you don't know what TULIP is, it's so simply... Um, Five doctrines, each letter represents a doctrine. So T, total depravity, U, unconditional election, L, limited atonement, I, irresistible grace, and P, perseverance of the saints. Now, I know that some people don't like that acronym um, because some of the doctrines can be seen to be distorted by, so for example, irresistible grace doesn't mean that God drags us kicking and screaming to his kingdom, or total depravity doesn't mean that we are um, as bad as we can possibly be. So if you don't like tulip, there's another one. You've probably seen this, perhaps. Bacon. If you don't like Calvin, you can call yourself a five-point Calvinist or you can call yourself a five-strip Baconist. So B, bad people. A, already loved. C, completely atoned for. O, overwhelmingly called. N, never falling away. Bad people already loved, completely atoned for, overwhelmingly called, never falling away, five-strip Baconist. Who doesn't like bacon, right? Well, as far as I know, TULIP as an, as a, as a mnemonic came about either in the early 20th century or late 19th century. But the question is, why are these five doctrines grouped together? I'm going to try to argue that these are biblical doctrines, but why are they put together? And the explanation for that really goes back to the Netherlands in the early 17th century. At the, uh, the Dutch churches, um, embraced the doctrines of the Reformation, especially as taught by Calvin and those in his vein of teaching. So they embraced Calvinism and they confessed their faith in a confession that was originated in 1561 called the Belgic Confession. Later on, um, a Dutch minister by the name of Jacob Arminius rose up. Um, Arminius lived from 1560 to 1609. And he began to preach doctrines that people began to see were inconsistent with the faith that was confessed in the Belgian Confession. And so um, a dispute arose. The followers of Arminius 
put together a document called the Remonstrance in 1610, the year after Arminius died. And because politics and religion were very closely connected, this became a pretty big deal. And it led to a synod in 1618 and 1619 called the Synod of Dort. As far as I know, this is the only international Protestant synod in history. There were not only ministers from the Dutch church, but also ministers from England. The King of England, actually, James, sent ministers over to the Synod of Dort, um, ministers from Germany, other places. And they considered the doctrines of the Arminians. The Arminians presented their doctrines in five points. And so the Dutch Reformed churches um, responded in five points. If you've never actually read um, the uh, the canons of Dort, I'd recommend it. Um, they are a pretty clear, and it's not a very long document either, um, just expression of their rejection of the five points of Arminianism. And so they they did this. And this is why... The, these five doctrines are put together. The Arminians denied the, the biblical understanding of depravity. They denied unconditional election. They denied um, a limited atonement or irresistible grace. They denied the perseverance of the saints. So over against that, the, the, the Synod of Dort said no five times and said this is what the Bible teaches. And this is what we want to talk about over the next few days. Now, I'm not going to follow the order of Tulip. In fact, I'm going to do old tip and I'm going to put the T and the I together, which actually the Synod of Dort did as well, but it will help us to do this in four sermons instead of five. Now, why am I doing this? Well, one of the reasons why the, the Reformed churches in, in, the, in the Netherlands were so concerned about this, the reason why they made such a big deal about this is because they understood that more was at stake than just um, abstract doctrines. They understood that if they were to be careless about these things, it would affect the very life of the church. It would affect the very heart of the gospel. And they understood that there's, there were very practical implications, implications for faith and life and holiness that would be undermined if these doctrines were not clearly and distinctly taught. Now, we are living in a time where there is just incredible change. And I know there are, there are all sorts of things we could address. We could address the rise of critical theory and and the biblical response to that. We could address the trans movement. So many things that we need to speak to clearly um, from a biblical point of view. But I think as 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 we as the church is faced with new challenges, one of the things we need to do as we face these new challenges and address these new challenges, we need to remember what we're defending, what we're guarding. And though I don't think that the, the these five doctrines represent even the core um, of or the essence of, of the faith, that would be namely the center. God is at the center. His glory is at the center. But one way I think we can think of these doctrines, these are gates in the perimeter of the wall surrounding God and, and what we believe about Him and, and His glory. And these gates need to be defended at all costs. And one thing we've seen from history is that when these doctrines are neglected, other things happen. So I was rereading this week um, in Ian Murray's book, The Forgotten Spurgeon and the uh, the Downgrade Controversy. One of the things he talks about there is how that, although the Downgrade Controversy was about the rise of higher criticism and the way it invaded the church and destroyed the, the, the authority of Scripture in the church, what went along with that was actually also a decline in Calvinism. This is what Ian Murray says. The decline of Calvinism was clearly related to the growth 
of liberal theology. Arminianism had softened up evangelicals so that higher criticism could permeate the nonconformist denominations with little opposition. And this is exactly what happened. Here's what Spurgeon said about the doctrines of grace. He said, Calvinism has in it a conservative force which helps men, which helps to hold men to vital truth. I think this is exactly right. And so my goal here in these next few days is to exposit the doctrines of grace, but to do so with the aim that we can see how really practical these are. So not simply as a cudgel to smite Arminians over the head with, but as medicine and balm with which to heal wounded souls. This, this evening, I want to begin by talking about the you and tulip, or unconditional election. So there's, there's three things I want to do this evening. First of all, I want to explain the doctrine. I want to vindicate the doctrine. And then we want to apply. We're going to look at the application of the doctrine. Explanation, vindication, application. And again, the thing I'm driving at here is the application. I want you to see these are more than just doctrines that distinguish us from Arminians. These are doctrines which give light and breath to the Christian life. So first, first of all, what does the Bible say? And why did I choose this text? Well, first of all, the Apostle Paul is talking about election. I know the word's not used here, but we're going to show that this is what he's talking about. In verse 9, where the Apostle says, God saved us. Well, how did God save us? Well, he saved us and he called us with a holy calling, not according to our works. What's behind the salvation? What's behind the calling? It's not our works, but according to God's own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. So this purpose and grace given in Christ Jesus before the world began, that's the doctrine of election. So there's a, there's a very close connection between this verse and Romans 9-11, where the Apostle Paul is illustrating the fact that not all um, are Israel which are of Israel, not are all of the, the spiritual seed of Israel which are of the natural seed of Israel. And he justifies this by a reference, first of all, to Isaac and Ishmael, then to Jacob and Esau. This is what he says about Jacob and Esau. For the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God, according to election, might stand, not of works, but him that calls. You see that this purpose of God that calls is according to election, not of works. This is what Paul is saying right here exactly in verse 9. This purpose and grace given us in Christ Jesus before the world began is a, is a purpose of election. And what we mean by this is that before the foundation of the world, before God made the world, God chose, God seeing that um, the, the humanity would, he, he didn't foresee that the humanity would um, fall and then recover themselves. He foresaw that man would fall, would reject him. Man would um, go for self-sovereignty. And as a result, Adam would plummet his entire race into a terrible, terrible state of sin and death and misery, a state into which they would not be able to recover themselves. And so God, in his sovereign election, chose certain individuals to rescue sovereignly from this sin and misery. So this is unconditional election in the way that Paul describes about Jacob and Esau. He didn't do this 
by looking at their works. He didn't do this by considering certain things about them. So God did not elect certain individuals by foreseeing faith and repentance, though it's also clear that faith and repentance are important, but this is not the basis for God's election. It is unconditional in that sense. And this, this is all over the Bible. Now, some people will respond that God um, doesn't elect um, individuals for salvation, but he elects nations for historical purposes. We're going to see that's not what Paul's teaching Romans 9. But this is all over. For example, Romans 11, verse 5, the Apostle Paul says, even so then at this present time, talking about the Jews and the fact that um, in Paul's day, the Jews by and large had rejected the gospel. But Paul reminds his readers that in, in Elijah's day, there were 7,000 knees who had not bowed the knee to the image of Baal. And Paul says, even so then at this present time also, there's a remnant according to the election of grace. The reason that the, the, what, what, just, what uh, explains why some Jews Embrace the gospel, the Apostle Paul says, is the election of grace. Or Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 1, 4, knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. This explains why they embrace the gospel. So you see it all over the New Testament. One of the best places I love to go is John chapter 6 in our Lord's words. He doesn't mention the word election here, but it's the same thing. Listen to what Jesus says in John 6. So, Paul is explaining, for example, in Romans 11, why some Jews embrace the gospel. It's because of the election of grace. Paul is explaining in 1 Thessalonians 1 why the Thessalonians received the gospel, because they were chosen. Jesus does the opposite here. He explains why some people did not embrace the gospel, because they weren't. Um, this is what Jesus says in John 6.35. I am the bread of life. He that comes to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have also seen me and believe not. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. And him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. For I came down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. And this is the will of him that sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes on Him may have everlasting life, and I will raise Him at the last day. What is election? Election is this. Before the foundation of the world, the Father gave a people to His Son to save. And Jesus came to this world to fulfill His Father's will. He came to do the Father's will and to raise everyone that the Father gave Him from the dead, to save them, to bring them to faith and repentance, and to raise them up at the last day. All that the Father gives Him. That's that's the doctrine of election in a nutshell. Now, as I said a moment ago, that's explanation. Let's look at vindication now. Some will say that, well, yes, you can't, we can't, of course, deny the doctrine of election. We can't deny predestination. These words are actually used in the Bible. This is taught. But here's what we think happened. Here's what happened. God saw certainly that man would fall, but he also saw that if if, if God would just give them people enough grace, put people back in a neutral position, they would respond. Some people respond, some people would not. But God foresaw that some people would respond, and on that basis, He elected those to salvation. So election, in other words, God chose us because we chose Him. God foresees, some people would choose, and therefore chooses them. So in the, the non Calvinistic reform, however you want to put it, the, the non-doctrine of grace way of looking at this, 
election is conditional. It's conditioned on foreseen faith and repentance. And we deny this. And the Bible denies this. Now, one of the, one of the reasons why this seems plausible, at least, is because of verses like this. Romans 8 and verse 29, where the Apostle Paul says, whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son. People say, well, look there. So foreknowledge precedes predestination. And so therefore, God foreknowing the way people would respond, God foreknowing the way people would act is the basis of God's predestination and God's election. Well, it is true that in Romans 8.29, foreknowledge precedes predestination. But there are a couple of things we need to note here. Number one, what is foreknown are not actions, but people. And secondly, in the Bible, knowledge is not just um, knowledge about. Knowledge in the Bible often is connotes love. And to foreknow a people in this sense in which the Apostle Paul is talking about is, um, a, is, is to talk about a special relation that God has with them by covenant. So I think a very clear example of this is back in Romans. We mentioned this just a moment ago in Romans chapter 11. If you will, just read this with me for a moment. Paul says, I say then, hath God cast away his people? So talking about the fact that many in Israel had rejected the gospel, had turned against Paul and the church, were in fact um, actively persecuting them. Paul himself had been a persecutor of the church. And Paul says, in light of this reality, has God rejected, has God cast away his people? And Paul responds by saying, God forbid, may it never be. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. Now listen to this. God has not cast away his people, which he foreknew. Now what's Paul talking about there? He's not saying that, that God foreknew Israel in the sense that he knew about what Israel would do. Israel was set apart from all the other nations. How? God made a covenant with Israel. And by the way, the way God made a covenant with Israel had nothing to do with the mightiness of Israel, the number of Israel, or the goodness of Israel, right? So foreknowledge here clearly is a special relationship based on covenant. Amos 3.2 You only have I known of all the nations of the earth. In Matthew 7.23 our Lord says, I, talking about the wicked who come before him in judgment, Christ says, I will say to them in that day, I never knew you. Now, he's not saying I didn't know about you or that I, you escaped my notice or that I didn't know what you did. I'm just finding out about it right now. In fact, the whole point of that, that, that passage is that Christ knew exactly what they had done. They did not do the Father's will. So what does it mean? I never knew. It means I did not love you. I was not in a covenant relationship with you. You are not one of my own. You do not belong to me. This word for no is also used in 2 Peter chapter 1 in two places. I think this is very instructive. So for example, in 1 Peter 1, <coughs> sorry, um, 2 Peter 1. Um, the Apostle Peter says, Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. And then he says in verse 20, knowing... Um, 
Sorry. I'm sorry. It's actually First Peter. I wrote it down wrong. I will have to correct that mistake. So let's go back to First Peter 1. Um, this makes actually a lot more sense. I was thinking, why did I choose that? <laughs> Elect, according to the foreknowledge. Okay, this makes much more sense. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Okay, so there it is. We're elect how? According to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Okay, what does that mean? Look in verse 20. Is Peter's talking about Christ. We are redeemed not by the corruptible things, but with the precious blood of Christ, verse 19, as of a lamb without blemish, without spot, who verily was foreordained. Now that's the same word as foreknow in chapter 1, verse 2. So it could be translated, who verily was foreknown before the foundation of the world. Now, that clearly does not mean that God knew about Christ, but that God was in covenant with Christ to save His elect. So this, this foreknowledge is much deeper and much richer than just this very shallow idea that God knows about. God knows people. He knows them and loves them in covenant relationship with them. And we see this actually worked out throughout the New Testament and throughout the Bible. The Bible is, is very clear about this, that when people come to faith, that that's not what triggers God's election, but it's the other way around. So for example, Acts 13 and 48, describing the conversion of the Gentiles. Um, this is the inspired um, commentary on that event. And when the Gentiles heard this, that is, heard the gospel that the Apostle Paul is preaching, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord, and as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. That clearly means that the reason why these folks believed and others did not is because they were ordained to eternal life. The faith is in fact a gift of God. The Apostle Paul teaches that in Romans, sorry, Ephesians 2 verse 8. For by grace are we saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. So, if, if, if God is foreseeing faith, He's foreseeing something He would have given in the first place. I think going back to John 6, 37 is also instructive where our Lord says, all that the Father gives me shall come to me. Again, the order is instructive there. It's that those whom the Father gives to Christ, they are the ones who come. It's not, Christ does not say, all who come to me are given by the Father. It's the other way round. We come because the Father has given us to Christ. And so we should not explain the doctrine of unconditional election as um, based ultimately on human choice. Now, this does not mean that human choice is not involved. It doesn't mean that faith is not involved. It doesn't mean that repentance is not involved, but it means that. Our faith ultimately is to be explained not by human will, but by God's will. That underneath our faith is not our faith, but God's faithfulness and God's decree. The doctrine of unconditional election. Now why is this important? How should this impact our lives? Now, I think that's a good question to ask, although I think we ought to say this first. You should never begin there. You should never begin with the question, how does this impact me? Or how does this apply to me? You should get there. But you shouldn't start there. The where we should start is, what does God's Word say? Whether I see how it applies to me or not. 
whether I see it's important or not. It's just, what does God's word say? God is God and I am not. He is wisdom. I am not. I'm a fool. So we, we humble ourselves before God's word. And we ask, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. But when we see clearly what God's word says, then we need to ask the question, okay, how does this impact my life? How does this make a difference in my life? Because we never want to be people who simply are head Christians and don't, don't walk the walk. I love the, uh, the way John Bunyan illustrates this in Pilgrim's Progress. You know what I'm talking about? Where they, they, um, Christian. And I think by this point, it's hopeful. They run to this guy by the name of Talkative. And Talkative just knows how to talk the talk. He knows how to sound like a Christian. But he knows nothing of real vital Christianity. And so, um, I think, Hopeful is hopeful about talkative and Bunyan and a Christian explains to him, this guy, this guy is, uh, is like the, is like the, uh, the unclean animals in the, in the, under the law that know how to chew the cud, but they don't part the hoof. They don't know how to talk the talk, but they don't walk the walk. We don't want to be like that. So how does this apply to our life? And this is one of the reasons why I chose first Timothy one, sorry, second Timothy one. Paul is not writing this to Timothy. He's not telling Timothy about God's calling and God's purpose of grace for the purpose of Timothy, um, you know, chewing on a heretic's leg. The point here is that Timothy, Paul was on the verge of dying. He knows this. In chapter four, the apostle Paul says, my time's up. Um, I have finished my course. I kept the faith. Henceforth was later for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord the righteous judge shall give me in that day. He's in the prison there in Rome. He knows he is about to be executed. And so he's writing Timothy this last final word. Timothy is probably um, a timid guy. He was not probably one of these gregarious A-type personalities. Go get him. Um, so you kind of hear this come through where Paul is constantly reminding Timothy to stir up the gift that is in him. Um, verse 6, looks like it's dying down a bit. Um, he tells Timothy, God's not given us the spirit of fear. And why would Paul say that to Timothy? Probably because Timothy was afraid. Timothy sees his mentor, the man who led him to faith. He sees him, his father in the ministry, departing. This man has led all these churches. And Timothy's going to be left behind alone. And he's afraid. And so Paul, and again, you have to realize that this is first century. Um, <clears throat> I'm preaching the Revelation right now, and John talks about the beast. And no doubt that when, when John wrote that to his audience, they would have immediately thought of the, the Roman Empire and its viciousness. This was, a, this was a hard time to live as a Christian. So Timothy was afraid. Paul's in prison. I mean... There, there's, there's a lot to be depressed about. So Paul is writing to encourage Timothy. He's writing to put steel in his back. He's put iron in his blood. And how does he do this? He reminds them of the sovereignty of God and salvation. And I think that's so important. We may not be facing imprisonment right now, at least, but there are so many ways we can become afraid. There are so many ways that we can be, lose heart. I mean, we are, we are, we are in a time where you hear just one story after another of deconversions. People becoming fed up with the faith for one reason or another. 
and leaving the faith, people losing hope. How do you, how do you not get there? How do you not become so afraid that you just walk away from Christ? That you lose faith, you lose hope? Well, I think one of the reasons what, what, what is behind a lot of our fear is that we, there are certain things in our life that we trust in. And we are afraid that those things are going to be taken away. We fear that what we find security in is going to be taken away. My friends, this is exactly where the doctrine of election can help us. When the, when the ministers at Dort talked about this doctrine, they, they, they use this phrase, at least this is always translated in English, uns, the unspeakable consolation of the doctrine of divine predestination. This is a doctrine that gives comfort and courage. One of, one of my favorite stories, actually, this is a story from B.B. Warfield. Um, he talks about, you know, you know what uh, the Shorter Catechism is, don't you? So the Shorter Catechism has this question in it. What are the decrees of God? The decrees of God is His eternal purpose according to the counsel of His own will, whereby for His own glory He is forwarding whatsoever comes to pass. This is, this is all about the sovereignty of God. And there was in, in, the, in the West, there was this town that was overrun. And there were rioters, and it, things had just gotten completely out of hand. And they had to send the cavalry in there. They sent the army in there. That's how bad it was. Or I imagine one of our towns becoming that bad. And anyway, this army officer was there in that town, and he sees this guy walking towards him. This guy, just in, in the midst of this chaos, in the midst of this uncertainty, so all sorts of reasons of fear, this guy has poise, he has bearing, this guy's clearly not afraid. And the army officer looks at him, and uh, the guy looks at him, and he, he points his finger at the army officer and says, what is the chief end of man? Well, if you know what the, if you know the shorter catechism, that's the first question. What's the achievement of man? Man's achievement is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, which he gave as the countersign. And the, the guy said, I knew you were short of catechism, man. And he said, I was thinking the same thing about you. That's what the doctrines of God's sovereignty does. It gives you courage. So, how does God's, how does this doctrine give you courage? Well, it does it, I think, in at least three ways. It does it through the consolation of an unchangeable choice. Through the consolation of, an unch- of, a, of a particular choice and through the consolation of an unconditional choice. So first of all, it gives us courage and it gives us um, comfort, unspeakable consolation through the consolation of an unchangeable choice. The doctrine of election teaches that what is behind the salvation of any individual is God's decree. Again, that doesn't mean that our will is not involved, that we do not come to Christ and choose Him and so on. We don't, it doesn't mean we don't receive Him, but what's behind that? What explains that? Ultimately, is God's choice of us. We love Him because He first loved us. The gifts and calling of God are without repentance. And that's so encouraging to know that though my faith is frail and fickle, and little often, though my will is unstable and often uncertain, God's is not. You know, sing this hymn sometimes, when my faith 
will fail, Christ will hold me fast. That's true. I love the way this is put in Deuteronomy 33, verses 26 and 27. This is God speaking of Israel, but this is true of the elect, every one of them. There is none like unto the God of Jeshurun, who rideth upon the heaven in thy, in thy help, and in his excellency on the sky. The eternal God is thy refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. And he shall thrust out the enemy from before thee, and shall say, destroy them. Underneath are the everlasting arms of God. I am so thankful for that. We, we live in uncertain times. We live in times where everything is changing. Everything. My friends, there's one thing that does not change. Namely, God doesn't change. His purpose doesn't change. His purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began, has never changed and never will change. We can rely upon that. Secondly, we can receive the consolation of an unconditional choice. Again, we've made the argument that God does not choose people based upon how good they are, how smart they are. He doesn't choose them on the basis of their works. And by the way, this is reflected, because this is true of election, this is reflected in all of salvation. Who does Christ call to repentance? He does not call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And that doesn't mean that there are people actually righteous out there who don't need his help. That just means there are people out there who don't think they need help. There are people out there who think that they're like the Pharisee, Lord, I thank you, I'm not like other men are. There are people like that. And actually, we're probably all a little bit like that, frankly. We're probably a lot like that. But God is not, God is not saved. Jesus, I did not come to call these kind of people to, to repentance. I came to call the tax collectors. This, this guy who was so embarrassed and shamed by his sin, he couldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven, beat upon his bread and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus says, that's the man who went down to his house justified. He doesn't call, I love this verse, I love this verse in Romans 4, 5. One of my favorite verses in all the Bible. Who does God justify? The ungodly. That's what it says. He justifies the ungodly. Not the godly, the ungodly. Again, that doesn't mean that godliness is not important. It is important. And God chooses us, Paul says, in Ephesians 1, verse 4, to holiness. That we should be holy. Not because we were holy, but that we should be holy. God does not save the living but the dead and raises them to life. But you know what? We can affirm all of this and we can say yes and amen. God saves us by His grace. And then try to relate to God as if that's not true. Why do you think things have changed since your conversion to Christ? Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 8, verse 33. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ who died. Yea, rather, is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? By the way, you know, we'll talk more about this in our last sermon. Um, you know, a lot of people say, well, you know, <clears throat> um, God will never cast you out, but you can cast yourself out. Well, the thing is, right here, when Paul talks about tribulation, distress, persecution, fame, and nakedness, peril, sword, this is persecution. What does that do? 
that's the kind of pressure that, that, that drives people away. That's the kind of pressure that makes people turn on Christ, isn't it? That's the kind of pressure, that's, that's what would make you, if it were possible, to walk away from the faith. The Apostle Paul is saying, that is not going to separate me. In all these things, not, not away from these things, but in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. The consolation of unconditional choice. You did not become a Christian because you were good enough, and you did not remain a Christian because you are good enough. God did not begin loving you because you were better than someone else, and God does not keep loving you because you stay better than other people. Why does He love you? Because He loves you. Finally, the consolation of a particular choice. I love the way the Apostle Paul put this in Galatians 2.20. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. God Here's the thing, guys. When you hear someone say, well, Romans 9 is all about the election of, 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 of nations to historical tasks. That is baloney. And I'll, I'll tell you, here's, 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 here's the way you can answer that. The problem that Paul is dealing with in Romans 9 is the problem of national election. That's the problem. See, what, what's the problem? Well, God had made this covenant with Israel. Paul talks about that in the first five verses of Romans 9. He gave them the promises, the law, the covenants, and so on and so forth. And then Paul says, but it is not as though the word of God had taken no effect. In other words, the question was, Paul, you're saying all these Israelites who do not believe the gospel are going to hell. Paul says, yep. Well, what about all the promises God made to Israel? Does that mean that God is reneging on his promises? And so Paul's going to explain so in other words, Paul, the national election of Israel should mean that none of, none of the Israelites are going to be lost. And so Paul's going to explain, no, that's, that's not in fact the case. They are not all Israel, which are of Israel. So the problem Paul's dealing with is the national election of Israel. You don't solve the problem by talking about national election, uh, election of nations, the historical task. That's just repeating the problem. The, the, Paul's answer to this is namely that yes, it is true that God elected the nation of Israel to historic, to historical purpose and place and the plan of redemption, but God's saving promise, there is an Israel within Israel. And he illustrates this. We've talked about Isaac and Ishmael. Isaac and Ishmael, both sons of, of, of Abraham. Isaac is the son of the promise. Ishmael is not. In fact, Ishmael is an example of someone who's lost. Galatians chapter 4. He illustrates this by Isaac and, and sorry, Jacob and Esau. Now a lot of people say, well, that passage in, in Jacob and Esau, that's a reference to the nation of, of Edom and so on. But listen, in the book of Hebrews, Esau is another example of someone who's lost. So Esau and Jacob, sons of the same woman from, from, from Jacob, and yet God did not choose Esau, he chose Jacob, and so on and so forth. God, so the election Paul's talking about in Romans 9 and 2 Timothy 1 is not the election of nations to historical tasks or even of individuals to, to historical tasks. This is an election of individuals to salvation. And it's, the, it's, the, it's a particular choice. And think about what that means, brothers and sisters. It means that the God who knows the stars by name 
The God who knows the stars by name knows your name. If you belong to Christ, it means you know, he, God who knows the number of hairs on your head, He knows all your needs before you ask. He knows when you sit down and when you rise up. He knows your thoughts before you think them. He knows you. And I love this passage in Matthew 6 um, where, the Apollo, where, where Jesus is trying to help people not be anxious. And He says, don't seek after food and clothing. The Gentiles, the nations seek after all these things. And then He says this. Here's, here's why you shouldn't be worried. For your heavenly Father knoweth that you have need of all these things. By the way, there's another example of knoweth that's more than just bare knowledge. He not only knows, he cares. It wouldn't be, it would be cold comfort to know that God knows my needs, but doesn't take care of me. God knows and cares. He knows all your needs. He knows you by name. And this ought to lead to courage. It ought to bring consolation. It ought to lead to courage. Listen to the way the Apostle Paul speaks. This, this man who embraced this vision of God's salvation. He says, I'm suffering, verse 12. I'm suffering for the cause of the gospel. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed. And I'm persuaded that He is able to keep that which I've committed to Him against that day. God's able. I'm persuaded. That gave Paul incredible courage. And it ought to give all of us courage as well. This is not a doctrine to cause someone... I mean, if you really have experienced this calling, this is not a doctrine that should make you want to sit down and do nothing. This is a doctrine that ought to make you the most courageous individual in the face. There's because it doesn't matter what people can take away from you. They cannot take away your relationship to Christ. They cannot take away your salvation. There's not a devil. You know, it's like people told Martin Luther not to go to Worms when the emperor called him to make a confession of his faith. And he said, I do not care if there's many demons in Worms as there are tiles in the houses. I am going to go and give my confession. That's the kind of courage that this doctrine ought to give you. So again, we don't preach this doctrine. We don't, we don't, we don't want to use this as a cudgel to hit our minions over the head with. This is medicine for weary souls. This is balm for the hurting soul. Yes, we, we don't want the medicine to be poison. We want to keep foreign ingredients out of it. But this is how we ought to look at this doctrine. Now, other people will say, oh, but this, if you embrace this doctrine, it will prevent you from sharing the gospel with the lost. Oh, my friends, it will not. And again, history shows it will not. Some of the greatest evangelists believe this doctrine. So let me end this, this evening with a word to those of you who have not confessed Christ. You've heard me present this message. What does this mean for you? Well, I will say this. You cannot take comfort in this doctrine if you reject Christ. But here's what the Bible says. We, we quoted this just a few moments ago. This is what our Lord says. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. That's the doctrine of election. But then listen to what he says next. And he that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. If you come to Christ in faith and repentance, he will not cast you out. And you can, at that moment, rejoice in the consolation of an unchangeable choice, in the consolation of an unconditional choice, 
in the consolation of a particular choice. Let's pray. Father, thank you for revealing your word to us. Lord, there, there are so many things that you, you didn't have to reveal, and yet you revealed that you've loved us from eternity with a never-ending, unchanging, saving love. And Lord, help us to bank on that. Help us to, to retrieve all the unspeakable consolation from this that we are meant. Lord, make, help, help, help drive away fear to comfort our hearts, to give us courage for your glory and the advancement of your kingdom in all the world. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.